Welcome to the podcast, Orange Slice Podcast. Rich Owens, famous uh, owner, former owner of Tasty Freeze for almost 30 years. You owned Tasty Freeze here in Anchorage. Uh, Philanthropist, uh, I would call you a community activist, somebody who was always out there in the community um, making things happen and, and, and being a, being a person, a person of positive and, um, and just doing great things for, uh, for Anchorage in general. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. Uh, so Rich, uh, Rich and I met probably three years ago, right around 2020. That'd be about, that'd yeah. Be about right. Yeah. We, we met then and, uh, I don't know, Rich, maybe you can give us a little bit of, uh, maybe an insight into you know, who you are and, and for the people listening who don't know the famous uh, Rich Owens, uh, what you're about and, and what you've been up to. Wow. So uh, <laughs> I end up, I moved to Alaska in 86 from Montana. That's where I'm, I grew up in Montana and Western Montana and graduated from the University of Montana. And uh, So you're an implant. Uh, you're, an, you're, you're, an, you're not a, a born and raised Alaskan. No, I wasn't born implant. and raised here. I was born and raised in Montana and all my family. Actually, I'm the only one that was run off. The rest of the family is all still in Montana. So <laughs> You go back often to visit, yeah, though, I know yeah, that for yeah. sure. Say three or four times a year anyway, go back. And and uh, my my brothers haven't encouraged me to move back down there because they like to come to Alaska and visit. <laughs> so if I move back, it'd remove that th- that impetus. So For sure. Um so uh, for nine years after college, I ran actually uh, hardware stores. Large, it was kind of a cross between a Costco and an AIH down in Missoula. Okay. And then uh, I moved up here to open what is now the Millennium Hotel. It was originally the Clarion Hotel. What brought uh, you up I, to Alaska first? Was it was it that uh, the opening of that hotel? Right, well, the we, company we you're built, working for built was building it. Right, uh, Ericoa, which is a hotel management company, ownership and management company out of Denver, um, was building the Clarion Hotel up here, and that would have been 1986. Uh, um, and originally, I was, I didn't know I was coming this way, but the manager who moved up here. I came up in March and they thought they had all the positions filled up and I got a call at first of June when they were getting ready to open and they said they still want to come to Alaska and so the next day I'm on a Northwest Airline 747 from Seattle to Anchorage and and uh, I took a look at the place and decided this would be a good place to come and there's a lot of Montanans up here it's kind of a natural progression there's uh a lot of similarities and yeah, a ton of similarities. Yeah. Totally. So you, so, you finished the work on the hotel, uh, so managed we, it successfully. It's, it's still we, open to this day. Oh yeah. It's the lakefront uh, hotel. I it's think the lakefront now. millennium yeah. now. Yep. Yep. And there's, there's people that I hired in 86 and 87, 88 that are still there. So it's kind of nice to see that I've got some long-term employees still, still at the hotel. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yep. The, the head oh, housekeeper wow. there is one that, 40 years almost. Almost yeah. 40 years. Yeah. yeah. Holy shit. So I did that. Uh, it was supposed to be three to four years. Well, in 1991, they wanted me to move to Bakersfield or Cincinnati. And I said, you know, that for Montana boy, that's not really a promotion. So it's a downgrade. Uh, <laughs> so I, uh, no offense to California said, people. I'll just stay here. You don't have to pay to move me. And yeah. then shortly thereafter, I bought Tasty Freeze. 
Yeah, how did that and come about? Because you, it, it wasn't, it wasn't even for sale. Uh, I wasn't looking to buy it, and the people who owned it weren't really looking to sell it. And but we, we had common friends, and I was actually looking at a building down in Seward. It used to be called the Depot Drive-In down in Seward. When you first pull into town, it's a sailboat shop now. But I was looking at that business, and and I wasn't quite sure about it. And the, where wait where. Before you go into this whole story, because this is, I think, why uh, our listen, listeners are here. Where did you get the like the entrepreneurial kind of spirit, or you know, that word's new, obviously? But where did you get that sort of like I'm going to open my own business and the guts and the and the sort of uh, the confidence to go do that? Like my family, uh, my dad was a pharmacist, and we owned a drugstore. Oh, okay, in Deer Lodge, Montana, and it was a family drugstore, small town, but. But that time there were about 4,500, 5,000 people in town. And we always employed high school kids. Uh, Mom and dad were very involved with. At at the drugstore. At the drugstore. And, but they were involved with, you know, Rotary and Hospital Auxiliary and Church uh, Knights Columbus and Hospital Guild and the library. And so. There's, I've got a younger brother and an older brother, and in our family, we never really sat down and talked about what community service and philanthropy, the value of it, and why it was important and how to do it. It was just that we observed how mom and dad did it. You guys were just Every, in it. It was, sounds like you had great uh, people that were showing you and informing your parents how to, how to do this. Well, just my brothers and I were, were all the same as far as philanthropy and community service. They do what they do down Montana and I was run off to Alaska and but it was that orientation that I got from my parents that really directed how I was going to do my life and from the time we were old enough to sweep sidewalks and wash windows and deliver deliver tissues and prescriptions to little old ladies that like to bake pies and cookies uh, you know we worked at the drugstore I mean you got out of school and you checked in at the store, and if they needed something done, you, you just did it. And yeah. But for all those years, you know, all the way through grade school and high school and college, when you observe your parents um, just doing things for people every day. You start to that, model that behavior. You start to model that behavior. That's correct. And you don't really even think about it. You just subconsciously try to do something for someone basically every day without it becomes normal. It's not where you're making an exception. It's just how you live your life. And that was so important. That's, uh, did this come from religion or was it just sort of the, the well, your parents were just doing the right thing type of people? Or was this more of a sort of would, like a moral religion thing? No, it was, I mean, I'm Catholic and yeah. our family, we are very busy with the church as well. And, mm-hmm. And, uh, but I would say it was just the way that their parents brought them up because both my, my grandparents on my mom's side, dad's side, uh, they didn't have a whole lot. Um, but you know, mom and dad were very good at it. And uh, just the number of times that I remember dad, when people needed medicine, they didn't have money. You know, dad was the pharmacist. He made sure they got what they needed. And, um, so just to do the right thing type just of to, attitude. Just to do like, the right thing. Do and, the right thing. And help where you can. And it doesn't always have to cost a lot. Sometimes it's it's a very simple, very small thing. 
but it makes such a big difference to the people that you're around. Mm-hmm. So that was where my orientation came from. And like say my older brother and younger brother are the same. Do they, they own businesses as well? Uh, my, well, my older brother is now retired. He, he, he was a pharmacy technician for 40 some years. Oh, and wow. my younger brother is a general contractor and he's helped people real bit rebuild houses and renovations and stuff for people who couldn't do things. And so it was, uh, it was a special way to grow up and it was a like small town environment. And, uh, I just, I brought that small town environment to Alaska, I guess, with me and the way that I treat people and work with organizations and my view of philanthropy and community service came from that orientation. Yeah, we were, uh, I, I would say, like, on behalf of the community of, of Anchorage, like, we, we're lucky to have you now hearing, like, this story about the tight-knit family that you have and how everybody stayed in Montana. It's, it's, it's no, it's a, it's a miracle that we, we got you here because uh, you've done some really great things uh, for our community. But I don't, wanna, I don't want to get too far ahead of us ourselves because we want to stay on the, the Tasty Free story. But I wanted to get sort of that, um, you know, where that entrepreneurial spirit came from. And that makes a lot of sense that yeah. you're, you, you were modeling after your dad and, and it's sort of like all your brothers had it and, and it kind of just like seeped into the family's DNA in a lot of ways. And and I think that's the case for a lot of families. My, my dad was an entrepreneur as well, um, which led me to want to be an entrepreneur and start my own business, which I did. Um, and most people I know. So uh, I guess, you know, before we move on to the story of Tasty Freeze, which is going to be um, the main part of this podcast, what would you say to people who uh, don't have that uh, model, uh, that that uh, person that's modeling for them the behavior you're talking about? How how do you get that sort of in your life, and and how do you sort of pick up that entrepreneurial spirit? Can you talk a little bit to that? And if you don't have any advice, that's fine. I I think people listening maybe don't have that kind of person in their life and 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 to model after. So I think that's probably the hardest thing is they don't have that person to bounce ideas off or they don't have the confidence to try and do it I knew since I grew up in it that at some point even though I had worked for two large corporations that at some point I wanted to go back to that and I especially enjoyed working with high school students and college students because that's you had the ability to help kind of direct and mold and mentor mold those young minds Yes, and so through uh, when I was in hardware business, I hired all the kids that were working in the yard and the stalkers and stuff. And um, when I was at the hotel, you know, the majority of the hotel employees fell under the department that I was the rooms division. And then when I bought Tasty Freeze, the nice thing about owning your own business is it enables you to determine where your time, talent, and treasure goes. Time, talent, and treasure. Time, talent, and treasure. So where you spend your your time uh, or the special things that you have as a business person or an educator, that's, that's your talent and your treasure. That's what you make off the business. You can make those decisions on your own. You don't have a board of directors or someone else saying, no, this is what our budget is. And sometimes, you know, I've had some financial people tell me, well, you got to have a budget for for what you're giving away. So, well, no, I don't. <laughs> I mean, you, you just... It's nice to have a budget, but it's, it's, also it's it's the whole thing with 
but going back to your, what your parents did and how they raised you, it's like, do the right thing when it feels like the right thing. And I think that, I mean, I've had faith that if you continue to do the right thing, that things will work out, things are going to work out and they have always worked out. And so I think that's called karma, right? There was karma <laughs> there. real. There's real karma and there's real faith. And yep. you have to have that faith that if, if you're doing the right thing consistently, if if you run into a problem, you have faith that like if the business would have, you know, we would have had a different type of pandemic and the business would have closed and stuff like that. I believe that if you work hard and have always tried to do the best and help other people, then if you hit hard times, someone else is going to value what you have done in the past and step up and, and help and step you up and help you reciprocate. Uh, so, you know, I've been fortunate that I've never been in that position where I had to. Well, I, I, I want to just to speak to that a little bit. I think whenever you do things for other people, you're putting deposits in this proverbial bank, right? That's, that's, a, that is a relationship. Yep. And so when you do something for somebody without any attachment in terms of like what you're getting back, that creates um, the the reciprocation or reciprocal effect where it's like they automatically want to do something for you. And in your case, you have a business. And so you weren't doing the thing you were doing to get their business, but they automatically wanted to support your business. So in, in, in that, in that way, they, they kind of, those people that you were giving back to probably helped drive the success of Tasty Freeze for all those years Absolutely. and and never allowed you to get to that point where you were like, oh shit, what am I going to do? Absolutely. Because I mean, there were during the, during COVID, there were so many people that would come in and, and say, we were fortunate because we we're small. And even though our franchise were able to adjust menu, adjust work time, autonomously, Right. We could make adjustments to how we operated to serve and stay open. And even, and as an example, we became a, a distribution site for vaccinations during COVID. Yeah. And, and we took some flack for doing that because people were saying, well, it's, we don't believe in it. Tasty. It's, it's let's not, be clear. It, Tasty Freeze itself wasn't being wasn't distributing vaccinations. You were allowing correct, a, um, one of the health one, one of the health, health provider. providers to post up there and give people vaccinations, and everybody yeah. was doing it by choice. Whoever was doing it, nobody correct. was being forced to do this. There was, but you guys did. Yeah, this is a big point of contention, right? Because there's a lot of people out there who had a problem with it and and had maybe some physical health problems because of the. Um, the, the, you know, the, the injections and, and, yes. and so what, what the impetus for the whole thing was, uh, we had, there's a lot of older people in our area and they were coming in and they had gone to the mall or to one of the clinics and the lines were long and there was no place to sit. And they were saying there was no place to get a vaccination in that yeah. part of town. And so I think, you know, it's slow enough in the dining room. <laughs> right you can now. sit around here with their mask on and so be fine. So I, I talked to the city and and uh, they they got it together and yeah. and uh, once a week on it was I think Thursday evening. Yeah, from, I remember that from like yeah. four to eight uh, for weeks. We were, uh, they could make people could make reservations and the people who wanted to get get the shot were very appreciative. 
of being able to come in and they could sit down and wait and make an appointment. And um, the people who didn't want to get shot that talked to me about it, you know, I just said, no one's forcing you to do it. No. It's just, it's a service available to people who do want and, it. And like you said, it, the, the main reason you were doing it, it sounds like, was because of that um, most vulnerable population um, of older folks that um, that were at, at the high risk uh, side Correct. of of having complications if they did catch COVID. So that's uh, that's great. Uh, so back to the story, uh, um, you're you're talking to the owners. How did you meet the current owners or the pa- past owners now? But yeah, how did you meet the, meet the current owners and and convince them to sell you um, a franchise that wasn't for sale? Well, we. Uh, I was talking to him about the place, the, the building he down in Seward that I was looking at. Uh, Mike and Mike Clough owned, and Mike and Wanda Clough owned Tasty Freeze here in town. Oh, and the people down in in Seward did not know that I knew these people up here, and so I was, I talked to them for a while, and it just seemed like maybe the business was doing better than on paper than it really was. And so we were talking about it, and Mike says, well, where do you want to be, Seward or Anchorage? And I said, I'd prefer to be in Anchorage. And uh, Where you were living at the time? Where I was living, yep. And I had some other things. I was still doing some uh, um, work with hotels. The Americans with Disabilities Act had just come out, and most hotels were not ADA compliant. And I had all the training for uh, ADA signage and modifications uh, for hotel rooms and stuff. So I actually, for two or three years in there, I, I did independent work um, with different hotels. I did a renovation on a hotel down in Petersburg on their handicap rooms and, and built a kitchen down there and then like signage at the Hilton, some of the other hotels so in you town. you continued to work on hotels it's for still, this corporation? I, I still, con- uh, actually it was separate. You got another, so, another. I was, just, I was just doing it on my own. Oh, got it. Okay. Um, so when I was talking to Mike on a Saturday morning, this is where it kind of got funny because I'm talking about the building in Seward and he says, well, where do you want to be? And I said, well, Anchorage. He said, well, you know, we really never, never, cons- we were, hadn't talked about selling the business, but if we were going to sell it, we'd like to sell it to somebody like you that wants to be involved with the community and the schools and, and stuff. Let me talk to my wife and, and stuff. And this is like 10 o'clock Saturday morning. Well, about two o'clock he calls me and he said, you know, let's see if we can get something worked out. So, we met on Monday. Wow, four hours later. Four hours later. <laughs> so I said, well, get me the taxes and stuff. Yeah. So I went over to his house and got that stuff. Monday afternoon, we agreed on a price. So this is like July 15th, roughly, that we first talked about it. And it was a done deal on August 1st. In two weeks, the whole thing what? took place. And uh, Can you disclose how much you bought it for? No. Why? <laughs> <laughs> but well, what's kind of funny is... Uh, Sean Parnell was the attorney that did the paper. Was my attorney? Oh wow, he must have been young back then. He was, yeah, like well, back in '96. Was this '96 yeah. when you bought? Is '94. '94. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So uh, he was still doing. Uh, he had a small law office here in town, and so uh, Sean did all the paperwork for us on that. And we went to the bank, and we said, "Well, we want to do this on August 1st. And I said, "Well, that's 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 less than two weeks." 
So it's not a problem for us. It's a problem for you. No, well, we can get it done. So we met between the attorney and the banks and everything. We managed to get the whole thing done. You closed in two weeks. We closed in two weeks on a business. Wow. Yes. And it was a bank loan that you took out. It was, it was mostly a bank loan. He, he financed some of it. He carried part of it in a bank. Wow. Yeah. So how do you think that would have went down if, well, you just did sell it like recently. How long did it take? Best part of a year. Best part of a year, <laughs> right? Two weeks. So <laughs> things don't happen that way anymore. No. And I took a look at the all the all the paperwork for when I when I bought the business, and you know it's like fifty pages, and, <laughs> yeah. and this time it was like two hundred pages. Yeah. yeah it's a huge. The binder is much thicker. It was like a one inch binder. Ah, in, so in ninety four, and it's like a three inch binder. And yep, twenty twenty three. That is crazy. So you yep. get this business. You've never worked in a restaurant business or have yeah, you? Yeah. I in, actually in high school and college I had my own catering company. And <laughs> that came out of necessity cuz were you cooking the food or were you <laughs> what? It's um tell me so, the story so, about that. Well, since mom and dad the drugstore used to be open till nine o'clock at night. Okay. And so if if somebody didn't throw something in the oven or reheat something before nine o'clock, my brothers and I, you know, we we're eating late. Yeah. So late dinners, so, so late dinners. So lots of times mom would call and say, put this in the oven or she'd have stuff ready. So I, I had started cooking at an early age and then when I was like uh, a senior in high school, dad was president of the chamber of commerce and the guy who normally cooked the fair barbecue for fifteen hundred people had a heart attack. Uh, and fifteen hundred people? Right. And you stepped so, in. And so they were gonna cancel the barbecue and dad's president. I just told him at dinner when I says, You're president of the Chamber of Commerce. We are not gonna cancel the barbecue. <laughs> so, As a senior in high school. Yeah. And so um Watsi Donich was the guy who had the heart attack. So he wasn't allowed to do anything, but he was out of the hospital. Oh, he didn't die. He didn't die. Oh, okay. He just wasn't allowed to do anything. Yeah, and obviously. He, and he had this huge barbecue pit. So he and, walked you through? And so he walked me through, and I got the, the cooks from the grade school to help do the potato salad, the baked beans, and bake the rolls. Oh, and, my god! And everything. And That's so we amazing. we pulled this off. 1,500 and, uh, people. We... Yeah, because we, we barbecue about a thousand pounds of top round in this big barbecue pit. It's it's pretty wild. It takes twenty four hours. Wow! Um, so th- that's where you kind of uh, you know. So I started learned yeah. learned the food business, yeah. as, if you will. So I was doing that, and then all the way through college, I ran the little country club on the Elks Club kitchens in Deer Lodge. Oh my gosh! And so uh, you knew restaurants, right? And so then when I was in college. Instead of taking underwater basket weaving and camel driving <laughs> with all the out-of-state kids going to Montana, I took quantity food prep classes. Wow. So when I graduated Genius. with a degree in business communications, I was only three credits short of having a degree in quantity, in quantity food prep. <laughs> Is that a degree? At, at that, you Quantity you get, food prep. Yeah, I took. I was taking all the classes on wow. quantity. That's a handy and, a skill to have or knowledge to have when you start a restaurant. Right, and the only reason I didn't get a degree in that is because I wouldn't take a three-credit course in sewing. 
which now I wish I had taken. Yeah, just to have the credential. But because that way it would have been in the right department, and I could have gotten, gotten that as well. But okay, so you did so, have a ton of experience. So I had a lot of experience running the elk club and the country club. Okay, that makes a lot of sense why you would feel confident jumping into this restaurant situation. Right. And growing up in the family business, had a lot of food and beverage background. And that's actually when I went to the hotels, I was actually hired in Missoula when they opened the Sheraton Hotel because they needed another food and beverage manager. And so that was the position that they actually hired me for as my first job with this hotel company. Okay. After I left the hardware business. Close connection. There. Yes. Yeah. Very close. So, t- so you you buy Tasty Freeze. You're 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 now you own a restaurant. How did that feel? How did you? And how old were you when you when you bought it? You four would have been. I would have been uh, thirty. Uh, back up here, like thir- thirty eight. <laughs> Just do some quick math. Like, yeah, yeah. You were about thirty eight, thirty nine. Yeah. yeah, I remember you tell you told yeah. me this earlier. Um, yeah, so you're, you're pretty young still relatively. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you own this restaurant now and it's, it's, it's obviously it's thriving or it's, it's actually running. Uh, how did you feel? How did it, how did it start? How did, how did you start out with like just getting the, into the mode of running a restaurant? Um, because we had had the restaurants and the hotels and stuff, it, it was, it wasn't a big transition. It, It went really well. And then even though the transitional, you know, from the Clough family to me only took two, two weeks. weeks, yeah, <laughs> all the managers and stuff stayed. So yeah, I, I had that. And what's interesting is Linwood, who now owns Tasty Freeze, was working for me when I bought the restaurant. Oh, he already, he was working there when L- you... Linwood was one of the supervisors... When I bought the restaurant. Oh my God. So he told me when he was like 16, 17, someplace in there. Yeah. He was there for like, I don't know, four years, maybe a little longer. He told me then, when you retire, I want to buy the restaurant. He said that to you then? Yes. Yes. So. And he got his wish. So he had to wait for almost 40 years, but he, yeah, he's 46 now. Yeah. He was 16 or 17 when he told me, hey, when you retire, I want to buy the restaurant. Oh my gosh. So even though he didn't work for me most of those years, he was back and forth several times. He was, he was determined to do it. Yeah. So when I, about the time I hit 55, something like that, he'd check in a little more often. Ready to retire? Nope. Nope. (laughs) So when I hit 68, Asked the question, I said, you know, we should start talking. If I'm out of here, but by the time I hit 70, then this is probably good timing. Yeah. And it wasn't that I was so tired of it. It was, there's two, a couple things entered into it. First of all, if he was going to buy it, he was, at that time, he was 45. He needs to have enough years to pay for the thing and then save for his retirement. If I would have waited longer, that wouldn't maybe not would have been a good option yeah. for him. So there was that. And then I had three good friends who were all younger than me die in the previous year. And so I'm thinking, how long do I need to push this? Oh, oh. my gosh, yeah. So I had several things in my mind, mind there. I mean, um, yeah. I didn't want to die behind the grill or, yeah. or at the fryer in the office. Well, uh, I was. there's things that I wanted to do. So it just seemed like the natural progression. 
yeah. is to get things going. Yeah. And now he's doing really well with the business. Yeah. I wanted to get to that. How do you, how do you think about death and how does it, um, how do you stay so healthy? You're obviously, uh, in great shape, uh, and you're, you're you look healthy as all get out. Um, what's your secret and, and how do you, how do you think about death being that your you know, your friends, you just said three of your friends passed away. I'm sorry to hear that, but what is your, what is sort of your philosophy around that? How do you deal with it? Well, today's as good as the next to go. I mean, we don't get to pick generally. Um, I mean, I've had a good life and I plan on sticking around. Mom, mom and dad both died at 91. They both died at home. And mentally, they are both with it till like the minute they died. That's a beautiful thing. So uh, they just kind of wore out. And they both gave up the keys to the car on their own. My brothers and I didn't have to force them, (laughs) ask for the keys, which is one thing that I know a lot of kids have had to. uh, Yeah, so just live. Had a tough time with their getting keys from the folks. Living living in the moment, kind of being present. Right. And. Uh, try and take care of yourself. I mean, I could, I could be ten pounds lighter. Yeah, uh, I could well, get all that tasty yep. freeze. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, moderation in all things. Yep. So, to uh, you know, I don't fear it. It's uh, I'll be sad to leave. There's things I want to do, <laughs> and everybody says, "Well, how long are you stay in Alaska?" I said, "Well, as long as I can mow the lawn, shovel the driveway, and get the boat out of the harbor and Whittier." I'll, I'll stick around. All right. You know, it's, I creak more in the morning, you know, hit 70, it'll be 71 in May and, um, slow down. Maybe don't have the same level energy, but I spent five hours chipping ice and snow yesterday on the driveway (laughs) (laughs) when it was soft and I'm moving today. So I, it's great. I was, I was fearing how I was going to feel this morning actually. Yeah. You stay really active. I know that yeah. for sure. You're yeah. always just kind of doing so, especially when you're at the restaurant, it was constant Costco trips and unloading yeah. stuff and walking around, talking to people and cooking and all those things. It's really important to keep busy. It, it, it is. And there were a lot of people who are concerned because they want to know what my plan was for retirement. And I didn't really have a plan. And they say, well, you, you know, so many people, they, they just retire and they don't have anything to do. Well, there's a group of us that formed a nonprofit and bought a kid's camp here a number of years a ago. A kid's camp, a yeah. A kid's camp up between Palmer and Wasilla. And it's uh, 57 acres and sleeps 100. And, um, the, the church that owned it previously um, wasn't able to continue to maintain it and take care of it. And so a group of us put a nonprofit together and we bought it about 11 years ago and we paid it off a year ago in October. And if you got a kid's camp, you're going to be busy. There's, uh, there's lots to do. I bet you know, all the do. cabin, the maintenance, and, all the, the toys that you, that yeah. you bring in there. Uh, real quick plug for the kid's camp. Do you want to talk a little bit about it since summer's coming up uh, here in a, a few months yeah, it's, and it's called parents Saint, probably want to get their kids involved if it's not already filled up. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, called St. Teresa's camp. It's on, uh, it's just off a of trunk road in, in Bogart. It used to be called Camp Challenge, Jesus Camp. Okay. Um, People will go online it, and, and Google it. Yeah. Or put it in the show notes. Yeah. And so uh, we run eight weeks of a summer camp. But the, what's helped us out is we've put a lot of improvements into the camp. And so out of 52 weeks, we'll have 
organizations and groups that utilize it for about 42 or 43 weeks out oh, of 52. Oh, okay. It's not just a summer camp for no, kids. No, it's, 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 it's a year-round. In, in different organizations, not just kids, but uh, other organizations. We have quilters and choirs and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts oh, and cool. Trail Life. And, cool. What and, are the qualifications uh, to be able to use it? Um, just It's pretty much nonprofits for the most part. Yeah, charitable but, organizations. Uh, there's a lot of different church organizations and uh, uh, school groups, you know, sixth-grade camps and stuff. That's fantastic. Uh, I've used it. We've yeah. got 1,200 feet of lakefront. There's uh, 18 buildings. We have you know, archery and boats and canoes. Some of my best memories and, are from like a Bible camp that I think I went two summers in a row. And I just remember just being, it was the best time ever, you know, just yeah. waking up and just having activity. I'm the type of kid too. And lots of, I think most all kids, especially boys, like just want to play all day. And I think that's some of the problem with school these days is that, they sit them in a classroom and it's just, here's a, here's a, a, a packet of work to do. And it's like, holy cows for a kid with that much energy, like to set them down and expect them to, to, to do these packets of work. These kids need to be out playing for three or four hours and maybe do 45 minutes to two hours of work at the most. But uh, I think, yeah, kids aren't playing enough. And I think it's a, it's a really important thing for, for I, parents. to. Realize. I grew up with camp down in Montana. And so when I found out this camp was was probably going to go out of business, uh, the Church of God didn't want to have it subdivided and made into houses because they had spent fifty years putting this thing together. It was it was close to their heart. Yes, and so we worked out an arrangement with them, and they've been very good to work with, and uh, they carried the paper on it for nine years for us, and uh, with no interest, and you just don't get people to carry a million dollar note <laughs> with zero, no interest yeah zero interest and the land's probably worth way more than that i would guess and, and now it the, is yeah, yeah it's, for sure it's built up the back side of our property is is wolf like subdivision okay and, and the, so somebody would love to to subdivide it and make it a another neighborhood i'm sure yes yeah and um, uh so we we've been very happy with the results on that but it takes it's a lot of work yeah, so I bet. Your board. And you keep busy doing that. Back yeah. to, so your health, uh, I wanted to bring up your hair because you have one of the best hairlines. Oh, and, and best, <laughs> <laughs> The best hair that I've ever seen. It just stays in place no matter what. You were worried about it when you came in. You said it was windy because you knew we'd probably be on camera here. Uh, but yeah, where do you credit your, who give you that, who gave you that hair and who do you credit with it? My dad. Your dad. Da- dad's <laughs> side of the family. Uh, it's almost cartoon character perfect. Dad, dad's hair turned white, but he may, he he had mostly a full head of hair. Give a look at the camera <laughs> so the <they keep> people. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody, my uh, my barber is a little Korean lady, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so one day I'm getting a haircut, and she says, "You know lie." I said, "What? Says, you know lie?" I'm I don't. I don't understand what you're saying, Lucy. <laughs> she says, you know, lie. I would know. And I said, about what? She says, you don't color your hair. <laughs> I said, oh, you don't lie. <laughs> I said, no, I don't lie. <laughs> you're not lying. No, no, you don't need that. I, I was, I've been fortunate. To, yeah. Uh, I've got a lot of friends who give me a hard time because they're bald and yeah. all, all white hair. At, at I have friends. Yeah, and, yeah, friends at 40, lots of friends who are bald and fat. So... 
Yeah, you're doing great <laughs> at <Thanks>. 70 <laughs> to have a full head of hair and in pretty damn good shape, I should say so yeah. myself. But yeah, uh, you, you brought up uh, shrimping too. I think, uh, you know, your boat is a big part of your life, especially obviously uh, being in Alaska in the summer. Uh, talk a little bit about what, you know, the shrimping life and, and how, uh, where you do it out of and, and how that, um, how that works. Well, that was part of the reason that I wanted to stay, um, Ever since I got up here, my first boat was a little 14-foot inflatable with a 20-horse Johnson on the back. Where were you and, running that out of? Um, Homer, Seward, and Whittier. Okay. And when I first started going to Whittier. The Zodiac? Yeah. Yeah. It was like scary. Zodiac. Yeah. Uh, it was when you had to drive on the train with the trailer and the truck. Oh, my gosh. And go through the tunnel because they didn't have, you couldn't drive through the tunnel at that point. It was, everything was on the train. Train only. <clears throat> and so you'd drive the truck and the trailer on to the rail car and you oh go through gosh. the tunnel and that was always a kick. And then, uh, that boat was small enough and light enough. It was not a problem to haul it to Seward or Homer. And then by the time I turned 50, I was going across resurrection Bay. And when I, I, Carrie Kerrigan, and I had gone out for the weekend. We left on Friday. Carrie Kerrigan. Haven't yeah. heard that name in a while. Yeah, Is so, that from uh, channel two news? Yeah. Carrie Kerrigan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, we uh, we went out Friday afternoon and it was beautiful. The water was like glass, and we camped on Friday night and Saturday night and Sunday. We we're headed back in, and Resurrection Bay can get pretty crappy, and it got real crappy and it was pouring rain. And we're in this open boat, and it's a, it's really safe. Even, the waves are getting pretty big. You can't sink those things. They yeah. they're gonna float no matter what. Even if right. It's full even water. if there's no bodies in them. Exactly. <laughs> the exactly. Boat's gonna float. The boat's gonna float. <laughs> so I just got in behind one of the fishing boats that was going back in, and he knew what I was doing. So he, I kept up with him without any trouble. But I was get, we were getting real wet and really pounded, and I decided that okay, I'm 50. I want something with a windshield and a heater. <laughs> And so <laughs> I want to be comfortable. I want to be a little more comfortable than this. So we, uh, I, I ended up finding a little 22 foot sea sport and I had that for eight or nine years. And then when I had ladies on the boat, they wanted to have an inside potty. Of course. Of course. And so I decided that, okay, I'll find a 24 foot that has a, that has a regular head on it. And, couldn't find one, but a, a boat broker down in Juneau came up with a 27-foot pilot house, which is like a lot bigger than what I had anticipated. But there was a fellow who wanted to be a partner with me on a boat. And uh, so I called him and he said, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. So I ended up with 27 Seasport pilot house, but it took a long time to get a slip in, in Whittier. I bet because it's so limited. Uh, but about five years ago, I got a slip for the boat, so that makes it a lot easier. But I love shrimping and just sightseeing out of Whittier. Um, the nice thing about, first of all, it was close, and with the restaurant, I just couldn't be gone for two or three days at a shot. So Whittier, I can run down there in the morning and come back it's in the a- evening. hour-ish or, drive, yeah. hour 15 if you miss the train yeah, or miss the tunnel. Miss the tunnel. Yeah. I got real good at timing. Uh, yeah. uh, my timing on the tunnel. So, so it made more sense to be in Whittier. And, uh, so I finally got the slip and, 
uh, that's kind of my happy place. You can go down there and it's just kind of nice. Get away from everything. Um, if the weather gets gets lousy, there's always some place to hide, which out of Homer and out of Seward, that can be difficult at times. Yep. But you can always find the lee side of an island or a cove or a bay. You got any uh, crazy over. stories uh, of being out there and getting uh, anything happen while you're out there? Oh, there's... Uh, there's, there's always t- inclement weather, right? Uh, sometimes. I mean, some of the st- strangest times have been in fog because I've got really good instruments. So I've got radar and, and sonar and GPS map. And so I've got really nice instruments. And you can usually find the people who don't have good instruments when there's fog. <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of hope that they're not going very fast. And so numerous times... Oh, that's scary. I've I've noticed that there's a boat kind of either going in a circle or uh, going really slow. And so I'll approach them and ask them, you know, you having a problem in the fog here. And so quite a few times I've actually led somebody back in uh, that doesn't have really good instruments or if they're going really slow, it's probably because they don't have radar. They might have a GPS map, but that doesn't tell you if there's a, a boat or a kayak or something else in front of you. Yeah. It's, it's a little scary. Yeah. When the fog yeah. rolls in, it can be super dense and, and you can't see anything. And if the boat doesn't have instruments, it's yeah, if there's zero visibility. You're, yeah. You're flying blind. So it's, it's always been kind of nice to lead people in. They're very appreciative. Yeah. On that bad weather. Yeah. But, uh, Oh, there's some of the things you pull up from the bottom once in a while. I I lost a set of shrimp pots a couple of years ago, and and uh, so the next time I went over, I I brought a, a second set and I put the, those shrimp pots down in about the same area that I had the other set of shrimp pots down in. And when I pull them the next day, I manage to snag my other shrimp pots, and this is a 600 feet down. In, in what was in them? How long was it that, since you lost them? Well, it had only been a couple of days. Oh, since only I lost a couple them. days. So you were, were you trying to do this? No, no, it was just, it you was, were like, this is my area. That's where you usually yeah, shrimp. So I, you're like going to put them down in that I same put them area. Back down the same, but to, to manage to hit them and then snag the rope. Wow. And somebody had cut the rope, cut the buoy off. And so the lead. Oh, line, that's why you lost them. Yeah, they weren't really lost. It was the buoy. I could you could tell the oh rope shit. Had been do cut. people do that often? They cut it, uh, and why would they do it? Some in spite, and other people run over them. Oh, it could have Prop, been a run over situation. Props Prop. can cut them as well. That makes sense. Okay, uh, but this, this that's look, amazing. This look, and what was in it? Uh, there was some shrimp in it as, as well, but they had been in there for uh, four, or five, six days. It was too long. But it was just the odds of having that happen are pretty minuscule when you're that far down, you've got that much of a tide running back and forth to manage to put your pots down in the same spot, in the same spot enough to catch that line. And the gear's not cheap. No. I mean, how much does a setup cost like that? Well, each pot's about 110, 120 bucks. You got six of them. Uh, Well, that year there was only three, three, but there were two pots on that line. Um, So I went out, I left with two pots and I came back when I, well, basically I pulled four pots <laughs> because the line was tangled. Wow. I could tell when it started coming up, it was pulling heavy. real heavy. Yeah. Uh, 
so that usually means you're you're snagged on something. Lots of times there'll be other line or rope or things that come up uh, because there's a lot of pots sitting on the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, there, right. Uh, I over, imagine over all the. Years. I heard they're gonna delay uh, the season this year. Is that they, correct? Have they made a decision on that yet? I haven't seen anything in writing. Okay, I, yeah, they, I've, I've talked to a couple of shrimpers. Uh, the Wilbanks is one, and then uh, I talked to the guy at LFS, and he was like, "We don't know yet." Um, we're trying to figure out what they're going to do. So they're, yeah, they're kind of hesitant. Is there, is, has there been, um, a sort of shortage of shrimp or has it been going down or people are just shrimp like overfishing? I'm not, I haven't seen the reports from last year on, okay. On what the counts yeah. were on, on catch. We'll wait until that comes out. Right. So we'll find out. Um, there's more people doing it now than there have ever been. Yeah. Um, I mean, people are. I mean, I see a lot of my friends going out there and they're getting trash can fulls, you know, 50 gallon trash can fulls. There's no real limit, is there? It's There's no limit. It, start, it has started traditionally April 15th and gets done September 15th. But, but as far as like how much you can get, sure. right? You just have to report it, right? You just have to report it. Uh, you're only allowed two pots in the, the regular area. If you go, go far enough out, you can do three pots. That was last year. I don't know if they'll, they've modified that for this year, but... Uh, and these are Alaska spot shrimp, right? Most of them are spot shrimp. Yeah, they're, 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 they're size. Big. They're, they're big. They're huge. Yep. They're so good. Do you so ever eat them right off of the, like raw, like sushi? I, I'm not a, su- I like my sushi cooked. Cooked <laughs> or fried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like cooked sushi. Um, I did want to talk about uh, the coolest, is that coolest Air Force Base and the, the connection between uh, you and, and, and how um, Tasty Freeze and, and you and coolest sort of, the store, the backstory there, because the the base actually closed, which is uh, kind of about a twelve years ago. Yeah, hard thing for a community, and and uh, just kind of talk about how you you got involved with those guys. Obviously, they're really close to the restaurant, so they were patrons for a long time. But yes. you you had a way deeper relationship with that, and there's a flag out front, and there's a bunch of things that, that you guys so connected on with uh, when coolest the Air National Guard base was about five blocks down the street, and I bought. Taste Freeze on August 1st uh, of 94. And then two weeks later on the August 14th, I think it is, uh, I had some friends that were in a plane crash over by Alexander Lake and and uh, pilot and uh, one of the uh, other folks that was on the plane died and one was saved. But what the air guard at that point, there was a, they were doing a practice that afternoon. And so they had, there was a C-130 with two rescue men on board. And they were, they were about five minutes away from where the plane went in. And the pilot on the plane had, had radioed the tower and said that he got in clouds and he was about out of fuel. And then he ran out of fuel and he, they crashed near the end of the runway at, over at Alexander Lake. And... So I got to know the air rescue side right away. And then I'd recognize people from the guard base uh, coming into the restaurant. I mean, there, obviously, there were a lot of uniforms. You couldn't, there was, wasn't a day that'd go by where you didn't have a lot of uniforms in there at lunchtime. And kind of the nice thing about Coolest is it operated 24-7. So you'd, when you open at 10 o'clock, you'd have the guys who came in, the maintainers who went in at, Six o'clock in the morning, we're ready for lunch. So it was consistent. And 
So they were a big part of the business at Tasty Freeze. And we became friends with a lot of them. And then in, let's see, it would have been probably about 1997 or 98, there's a, an organization called Employer Support of the Garden Reserve, ESGR. And ESGR is it's a, it's a volunteer organization that the appointments come from the Secretary of Defense, and it's, a, it's the go-between organization between uh, traditional garden reserve members and their employers. And so the main purpose is to, uh, like if there is deployments going out, we would pre do pre- and post-deployment briefings with the, with the military members. And we would also work with their employers and remind them of, okay, here are your responsibilities to your employees, uh, this is there's there's federal regulations that that dictate that when they come back they need to have their job back, and if they were eligible for promotion during the time that they're serving, that that doesn't go away. And so, and then if there's an issue between an employer and a guard and reserve member, uh, we provide ombudsman services to try and resolve the issues, and most of them are just issues where they where an employer might not know what those regulations are so we do a lot of training that way and then we also recognize employers that go above and beyond uh, for their s citizen soldiers basically and so it ESGR covers Army Guard Air Guard and then also uh, any of the reserve Navy Reserve Army Reserve um, any reserve components. So if it's uh, if anybody falls in that category, that's who we're there to assist. And so I became involved with them, and I'm still involved with the SGR. I was the region chair for eight or nine years, and I state chair for four years. And uh, now I'm a, now I'm a has been. I'm a state <laughs> chair emeriti. <laughs> yeah. You've been there the longest. <laughs> uh, there's some. There's some others that have been there actually a couple years longer. Oh, really? Than I have been. Yeah. So, but it's a, uh, that was my affiliation with the military. And Interesting. When, okay, when I didn't Kula, know that. When Coolest closed. Yep. What year was that? Was that like twelve? Two thousand twelve? You said it was like twelve years that, ago. Yeah, yeah. eleven twelve. Um, we put the one of the first things I did when I bought Tasty Freeze is that corner where the big garden is out there, that was actually a mud hole. The city and the state had just redone the intersection at Raspberry and Jewel Lake. And they didn't at, do any at, at that point landscaping at all. Right. That contract was led about a year before this, the federal, if you're going to use federal funds, they need to include landscaping need to be included in it. So there was no landscaping that was involved with that. It was just a big mud hole out front. Yeah. And we had abandoned cars and garbage and everything out there. And I think this is the front of my business. And even though I didn't own them all, it perturbed me that businesses had to put up with that because the state and the city were not willing to step up and make it look decent. <laughs> so we put this we put this garden in. The city did give us a, a landscape architect, Jonathan Schulk was his name. And... Uh, so we did the design, and then we did about $60,000 worth of landscaping and raising it and the concrete block. The guard put the concrete block in for us, and it, uh, 
we did it for $4,200 in donations. That's and unbelievable because it looks beautiful. It's like, and it's something yeah. you, you guys upkeep to this day with, with new flowers every season. And, yep. and the garden makes that corner look beautiful. Yep. And it's really a community thing. Right. The community it's, it's a, it, an, volunteer. It's, it's an adopt-a-park. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, we're looking for, uh, I told the city, I said, uh, I can't keep doing this. <laughs> and so after, after what, 20, 25 years, they need to find somebody else to yeah, kind of head that up. So, so if there is a gardener out there, somebody who's really interested uh, in nice flower beds and stuff, uh, come please, take it over. Please, please talk to me. Why so not like Alaska Millen Feed or Bell's Nursery or some? Well, the flowers come from, we still get the flowers from the municipal greenhouse. But they donate them. So, right. Okay. That comes from the municipal greenhouse. That's nice. But to get them, to get the flower beds ready, to get the flowers yeah. uh, put in and maintain them throughout the summer, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and so if it can be divided up between a couple of different scout groups or organizations, that'd, that would be great. Yeah. Now, the other thing that, we had always wanted to have a flagpole out there, but flagpoles are really, really expensive. It's so, a huge flagpole that's out there too. Correct. So when when they announced that they were going to close the guard base, I went to the general and I said, can I have the flagpole? And so we worked on this for a while, but um, Jay Bear, any of the, the people who had first right to the flagpole were was basically any group on on Jay Bear, and he said just just wait until we hand it over to the airport. He says, Do "You know John Parrot?" And I said, "Yeah, I know John." He says, "Well, go talk to John." And so I stopped by to see John. I said, "Hey, when you guys take over the the guard base, we want to move the flagpole to the garden, and we want to dedicate it to Coolis." Because that's that was the headquarters flagpole, and it's a big flagpole. I mean, it's got to be I don't know, 50. 30, 50? Yeah. I was going to say 60, yeah, and it's, it's, I would overshoot it, but yeah. 50, yeah. Well, if we count what we put it put in the ground. And then it's like uh, it's yeah. elevated from the where you put it in the ground, too, yes. so it looks huge. So the day that I was there for the ceremony that when, when the guard signed it over to the airport, and at the end of the reception that day, John asked me, he says, well, what— when do you want the flagpole? And I says, I'll let you know. So I went down to see Bill Watterson from Watterson Construction. Yep. And and he assigned one of his best people to help me get this thing done. And we we moved it and got between concrete and culvert. I was going to say, everything. it must have been such a hard work to get that thing out of the ground. All the trucking and stuff, all the equipment to break Donated the Donated by Watterson. Right? Was came from Watterson and a few other groups. I paid thirty seven dollars to get that done, and that was because the guy I needed to, I needed some plastic wedges to square it up the, day, the night before we poured the concrete. And I had a friend that worked at AIH who could have gotten them for me, but he was on vacation, and so I had to pay. You had 30, to pay it. <laughs> I had to pay thirty seven dollars for the wedges to straighten the flagpole out. Oh my gosh! So forever, so, every, yeah. So and there's a nice plaque that yeah, uh, the plaques there. The, the, what does the plaque say? It's the plaque talks about the dedication for the fifty five years that Coolis yeah, was the, in the neighborhood, and it's dedicated to all those who served. And so it's there, and uh, the 
parents, family, uh, got that plaque put together for us. And yeah, it's a great story so, of, of how the community came together and, yeah. and, and like from the flowers and the flower beds and the landscaping to the flagpole and the plaque and all that came together as a part of your contribution. I think that's fantastic. Well, it was a fun project. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it almost it's, broke your heart. It's, it's just, yeah, it's uh, a lot of work. It's, it's a, it's still a lot of work. And so I'm begging you, if somebody's out there <laughs> that would help with the flower beds, anybody, um, <laughs> come the, talk to me. Yeah. I, I don't want to, uh, we're getting ready to wrap up here, but okay. I, I wanted to end with, uh, I don't want to break your heart on this one too, because, uh, I don't think anybody, I just heard this the other day. Okay. And, and you know, that song, uh, the Jack and Diane song, uh, right. how does it go? Sitting out in front of the tasty freeze, freeze yeah. sucking on a chili dog. Yeah. Uh, uh, do you know uh, what he's talking about when he says sucking on a chili dog? Do you know what he's referring to? I just I just hear the... <laughs> I don't pay attention to most words on that. I catch Tasty Freeze every time yeah. it comes on. Sitting out front of Tasty Freeze, <laughs> sucking on a chili dog. Something like yeah. that. Outside of Tasty Freeze, sucking on a chili dog. So it's come to light recently. On, this is on social media. I think I saw it on a, a reel that uh, Chili Dog was a brand of Slurpee back in the day that Tasty Freeze used to sell. You remember, is the dog with the floppy ears? Yeah. Chili Dog was the brand of Slurpee. So he wasn't sucking on a hot dog with chili on it. He was sucking on a Chili Dog Slurpee. Slurpee. Yeah, well, we haven't done Slurpees for a long time. Yeah, but I, I just thought, I just found this out. I'm, you know, I was always thought it was a weird way to describe eating a chili dog was sucking on a chili dog, but now it now, makes so much more sense. Now I'll have to pay attention to the rest. Of the I can't even here. believe you didn't know this the whole song. It's, no, you only heard Tasty Freeze and, and Chili Dog. Yeah. But uh, like chili dog is our number three item, I think. Still, so. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Shout out but, to yeah. uh, what is it, John Mellencamp? Camp, jo Jack, yeah. John Mellencamp, Jack and Diane sucking on a chili dog. That is a actual slushy brand, and he was not sucking on a chili dog. Wow. Yeah. Um, oh well. Rich, it's been uh, absolute pleasure. The time flew by. Uh, we're trying to keep it under an hour. Um, and I think we're going to have to have you on for uh, episode two. We talked about having you and Carol Makar on, who is the owner of the Girdwood Ice Cream Shop. Yep. And you guys are good friends. We call you the king and queen of ice cream in Alaska. So uh, that would be a different type of a podcast. It would be fun. I think it's been fun. <laughs> Carol is a character as well. So uh, we'll be sure to uh, to get her on this next time. But uh, honestly, it's been a huge pleasure. And I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for for uh, coming on the podcast. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's right. been fun.